Somehow I feel like what, with what I do, I'm meant to like share how beautiful life is and it's insignificant seemingly moments, right? Like I feel like even going back to the whole idea of like feeling unnecessary as an artist, I feel like somehow with what I do, I'm supposed to speak to like how even the tiniest parts of this life matter, that there's meaning in even the tiniest parts. Welcome to the Flying Fruit Bowl, a platform dedicated to the discussion and exploration of art and the creative process. I'm your host, Aaron S, and today's episode is the first part of a two-part conversation with the amazing artist Trills. Describing his work as a neo-figurative and neo-expressionist, Trills is a fine artist who creates images that explore the impact of the digital age and the way that his impact is how we connect with one another. I'm going to start where I start with everybody, which is uh, just tell us a bit about yourself, how you became an artist. Um, okay. Well, I'm Trills. I'm 27. Um, and I've been working professionally like for five years as an artist. I actually left school, like undergraduate education after four years there, but I didn't get a degree. So it was like at the end of my second year in school that I felt like I was like moved to pursue this after like several other things were on my mind as well, because I was the kind of person who... I went to school very much knowing what I wanted, what I felt that I wanted to do, but there were other things that like, I was still really feeling pulled to. And I'm somebody who like discerns stuff like a lot. So I really took time to think. And it was at the end of that second year when I was really like, this is what I wanted. This is like what I'm really feeling. Like I say want to do, but at the same time, I'm like, it feels like a calling. So it feels like what I was just pulled in the direction of. And then as weird as it sounds, I had like a weird sort of honeymoon period after that, which sounds really bizarre, I know, but like, I'm in very, very genuine about it. Like, it was just like, it's like falling in love. It really was. It's like weird. So are you self-taught or do you have any formal education in art? I mean, like, like I said, I had a, cu- a couple years at undergrad, but like, it was my last year of high school when I took an art class for the first time. And it's like when I did realism which is what I do now with the figure. And so like prior to that, you know, I'd drawn and stuff, but I had, that was like the first time ever I was taught, so to speak. Um, And then at undergrad, which is college, my college years. um, And I just say undergrad because I know it's sort of like different for different countries, the way that like higher education is defined and described. But um, anyways, like basically I had, you know, a few art classes, but because it wasn't until the end of that second year when I felt kind of pulled in this direction, I wasn't on like a visual art track. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have like a lot of classes for it, if that makes sense. So I basically say self-taught, like, you know, with that caveat to to some degree. Yeah. So you have like the benefit of both worlds. So like, you know, you've been in lessons that are quote unquote formal teaching, but you're mainly self-taught outside of that, really. Yeah. Well, and like, that's the thing about it though, is like the value of the education. And this is what I, I genuinely feel this for like everybody, for all artists. Like it was the collaboration, like it was the professors who I connected with. Like there weren't weren't a ton of them because my time was brief, but the ones that I did, it was so wonderful. You know what I mean? Like it was so edifying. It was so helpful. And that's what I, I think is worthwhile for artists. You know what I mean? Like if you have to go to school or if you want to go to school, I would say do it just because those connections are just so like worthwhile, you know? Yeah. And actually that, that actually segues very nice into the next question, which was, you know, like how important do you think it is 
for artists to have an education or a degree of some sort in the arts? Like, is it something that people should have? Or do you think you can do fine, perfectly fine without it? I genuinely think you can do fine without it. Like, it, and the, the longer I do this, the more people come to me and are like, like, you get the question, did you go to school or where did you go to school? And I'm honest with them. And I, I kind of explain the same thing. You know, I went for a little bit, but didn't get a degree. And oftentimes it's been, that's good. You don't, you don't need the degree. That's, you know, and I don't, it's, yeah. they're not speaking to me directly. It's like a general you in that sense where it's, so I guess, I guess what I mean to say is the longer I do this, the more I find that it's unnecessary to actually have that degree. But I, I acknowledge that everybody's path to this is different too. So if yeah. you do end up going that route, I wouldn't necessarily sway people from going, you know what I mean? Yeah. But only because I think that the value is just differently allocated, I guess. Yeah, you're right. So it depends on what you're going to get out of it. Because at the end yeah. of the day, it's like, it might not be what you're taught. It might be the connections you make, or it might be um, ideas you gain, or it might be just kind of a skill set you, you gain from it, as opposed to like necessarily what you're taught. And I think the thing about education is that it allows you to experience different opinions and different views and different kind of ways of thinking about things that maybe being self-taught wouldn't offer you you know for instance like yeah. if you have to read certain literature or there's certain kind of text you're meant to read like that's going to broaden your horizons more than you would do for yourself yeah. so I, I think I personally having gone through education having a degree in photography um that's what I've learned at least I guess yeah no that the exposure that's such a good point like the I, I think that's something too that I really sh I'm glad you mentioned because the artists that I was exposed to, like broad speaking, because you're right, yeah. like what they make you read, what they make you, you know, because like the professors that I had, they were great because they would recommend stuff. You know, they would they would be like, here's this artist, here's this work based on what you're doing, what we're doing with this project. Like they were really good professors at helping inspire. That's the yeah. thing about it is I think like the inspiration side of things too is yeah. And you know exactly what I mean then. If you had, I didn't realize your degree was in photography because yeah, it's, there's so much that you gained that wasn't related to the paper. Yeah. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, but it's definitely, I would definitely say you kind of have to trial it to know if it's right for you because I think yeah, it's not for everybody. But It's almost true for all education i think yeah. i mean that could be a huge digression so yeah. <laughs> turn this yeah. into the like education podcast but <laughs> well, genuinely i think everybody kind of has to go through that a little bit too you know that's true that, i mean you're right i mean you said about anything in life really couldn't you i guess actually yeah but okay let's get back on track because otherwise we will definitely go on some <laughs> a very very long tangent there because oh my goodness but hey that's cool that's what this that's what this podcast is for like this is why i love doing this because it's like if i want to go on tangents i can and it's cool. I know. You know because it's, I guess I shouldn't be afraid to do that then with you. That's, that's No, true. don't be because the, the way I see it, so the way I see this podcast, um, and I'm not going to cut this bit out, for me, this podcast is a space for artists to talk. You know, it's a platform for them to speak about whatever they want to speak about. If you want to spend the next, you know, three hours talking about beans on toast, be my guest. If that's what you want to talk about, that's perfect. <laughs> because at the end of the day, this is just a space where you talk about your work. And don't be shy and be like, oh, no, I need to talk about this, I need to talk about that. Like, talk about whatever you want to talk about because this is about you at the end of the day so that's how i see the podcast so my next question is what does being an artist mean to you well like i said i think it's a call i think it's a lifelong sort of vocation thing i don't and it sounds so cliche maybe but i genuinely don't think people choose to be artists i think it's just something that binds them i really think it's something that you can't help but do 
like it's as simple as you feel it inside of you and so you have to chase it and then when you do you just sort of can't stop and it's weird because it's like I think the hardships of it and when you look at artists from the outside in a lot of people with all the like stereotypes and cliches that come with that I think those hardships and difficulties are what weed out people who don't necessarily have that call you know what I mean like I guess it's I don't know I have a lot of feelings about that stuff in general because I come from a background where I don't come from an art background. I come from like a business background, like a family of very hardworking individuals. So I think being an artist for me has always sort of seemed unnecessary. Like it feels like art, you know, I kind of come from that place of like work is measured by money. Success is measured by money. Time is measured by how hard you work sort of like mantras. And so I think I genuinely believe at least that artists is something that people have to feel inside of themselves. And it's a, I think it's a great gift to just feel that inside yourself. Like when I say being an artist is a gift, I'm not like saying you're gifted because you can draw well, you can paint well, that sort of thing. I think being an artist is a gift because I just believe that receiving this call is genuinely the gift part of it, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I, I would agree with that. But I'm also curious, like, do you think that anyone can be an artist? See, and that's the thing is I think the difficulties of it, I think anybody can try. I think if you feel something in you like that pull, then do it. Because the challenges of this path are what will weed out people who aren't really fit for it or it's not for them. And I, but I don't want to say weed out in a negative sense, you know, like I'm not trying to, I don't want to put anybody down because I think that life unfolds differently for everybody. And sometimes those redirections are the greatest thing. You know, I think people who feel the pull to do this, if they try it, and they find it's not for them. I have confidence, honestly, that on that journey of discovery, they'll find the other thing, you know, because I think there's a lot of adjacent fields that people are more suited for that they would naturally sort of feel inclined towards maybe artist at the initial outset of just a thought, I guess. That's very true though, because that's actually a really good point because I always feel like you do one thing and because you're doing that one thing, you kind of look at other things that are adjacent to that and then you end up doing that. Like for instance, a good example would be like a lot of photographers start off doing photography and then they look at video and they become videographers. And then because they look at video, they look at music and then become musicians. And then yeah. you build a load of skills and you have like a, a wide ranging skill set. And by the end of it, you're almost like a production team yourself because you have a lot of different skills you learn. And and like as an artist, like you're an artist, but then also like you're a business, you know, you're mm-hmm. a business manager, you're a marketer, you know, your admin you're a secretary there's so many hats you have to wear as an artist so that you can't help but have one starting point that ends up being very many different things and actually could you talk about I don't think I put on the list but can you actually talk a bit about kind of like the different hats you wear as an artist and and how you kind of juggle those yeah no I think you're so right well and it's funny because I guess what I can share too is in undergrad, what I actually started going for was musical theater. Oh, My wow. initial start, yeah, I, it was one of those where you, I didn't go to a musical theater school. I just went to a typical liberal arts school, but I still had to audition for the program. So it was like one of those types of programs. And that's what I started as my major. And it, it was a bachelor of fine arts program. And then again, so ultimately it's, 
you're exactly right. It's like you start with one thing. And I think that's the benefit of school and higher education too, is it allows you the chance to really freely explore things with less ramifications because you're in the safe place where it's about learning different fields. You're not having to actually be in the fields where there's, you know, your time and your money involved necessarily, you know, like a, a job would be, but I digress. I mean, yeah, I think as an artist, you're right. Like you are a marketer, you're a secretary. I do I think one of the aspects of that of my art that's interesting too, because I work with a figure is it's like I end up becoming a creative director a lot of times yeah. when I do photo yeah. shoots for models because I work from photographs. And so I to build those reference photos, I have to use a camera and I have to take photos of individuals. And so I think what I learned from my time studying like musical theater, which was brief, but what I still think I took from that is how to sort of direct a little bit. So it's trying to better understand how do I relay the emotions and ideas that I have to another person in a way that they will receive and then also be able to carry out through their physical form. And then I have to be the one behind the camera to capture that and be sort of driving the experience you know the photo shoot that in that time and so that's that's a big hat that I wear that I don't always enjoy just because it can be stressful to sort of work with somebody else and share the ideas it's very personal is part of the reason why that's stressful you know because trying to get the ideas out of my own head and into somebody else is not always easy to do and so but that's definitely that's a huge hat that I wear is I feel doing that um I think the marketer one or publicist or having to be the person that's constantly sharing and soliciting, it feels like soliciting at least when you're trying to get your work sold, you're trying to connect with buyers, you're trying to nudge people to support what you do as kindly as you can. That's, I think, the ugliest thing I do. And I say ugly just because personally, I don't like that. I look forward to the day when there's enough traction. And I look forward to the day where there's enough of an audience where, you know, it's not that it's, I don't have to do any work. That's not the point. It's just that it's able to naturally move. I don't have to be pushing because I I don't like to be the person that feels like a pusher. I started a newsletter because I got tired of like, feeling obligated to call my grandma every time a show came up. You know what I mean? Because I, I feel bad. It's not that I don't want to tell her. It's like, I just, I feel bad telling, being like, hi, I have a show. If you want to see it, here's the details. Whereas like now, at least with a newsletter, it's going out there in just an un like moderated sense from me, I guess you would say. And then people can do what they please with the information, you know? Yeah, and it's also it goes out to the people who want to see it as well, which is the most right. important part. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm the kind of person who constantly doubts that people want to see it, you know, when it comes oh, no, to my own work, you know? So it's like, that's that's my problem too. That's like why, <laughs> that's why I'm like, I don't want to just like push this because again, that's where I feel solicitous. I feel like I'm, you know, but that's again, going back to the question though, that's a huge hat that I wear. That's not very much fun for me is the marketer, that sort of aspect. So one thing I want to quickly just say, like, it's interesting that musical theater is what you were majoring in because like that ties very nicely in the idea of performance and art can be very performative. Yeah. Um, that's just a really interesting kind of a little link that uh, 
in a weird way, it makes kind of a lot of sense to me, having spoken to you previously. But also, it's kind of very surprising. But also, it makes sense for your work because it's very much focused on the performative nature, I guess, of our current technological world. And uh, let's get into your work, actually, on that. So, ratio. So, for those who may not have seen it, how would you describe your work? I'm a figurative artist. And the reason I describe it like that initially is because the figure is my major focus. Like it's, I describe it as like my vessel of expression and it's always at the core of what I do. I, I other tools that I gravitate towards a lot of times with my composition are color, geometric shape and form and text. Like those are really big for me. So I'm often utilizing those and realism just kind of in a general sense. I just feel like depicting things realistically is something that I also really like and I'm a drawer so I utilize colored pencils I utilize graphite as well but more colored pencils still at this stage and so that gives me that fine detail that like technical detail that I can really dig into and I really really like that aspect so that's the reason I think realism appeals to me so much but I that's the thing too is I also don't like to put myself in a box I being kind of vague with what I the tools that I use or like the way to describe it because I like to leave it open-ended I like to I like to describe it as art by any means necessary. Like, and that's sort of my philosophy when it comes to a lot of artwork is the focus for me is on expressing the ideas and the emotions and the concepts. And so I'm using the composition, I'm using my tools to reach that. And so if I need to subvert reality, if I need to subvert certain aspects of the figure, I will in service of the ideas. That makes sense. That's pretty cool. And what was the first image you ever created? Um, there was such, I loved when you, I loved this question on the interview notes because I was like, I really had to think. And I also had to really be honest with myself because <laughs> if I really go back, I'm, I'm not one of those people who, oh, you're an artist. You've been doing this forever. Yes. There's like those stories of like being all wispy eyed, sitting on this dock of like, a river with a, a journal, like always, like I was drawing sailboats for all my life since I was, you know, four, like, that's not me. I was drawing when I was a kid, but when I was drawing, I would just draw the characters in my video games and I would draw really rudimentary, like just shapes and forms, like just flat stuff. You know, like I was yeah. not doing any sort of hyper-realistic renders. I was like using pencils, sure, but I was just drawing, you know, and then, that evolved into actually making my own characters because I wanted to make video games when I was a kid. And I drew countless, countless levels and layouts of worlds for my characters and all kinds of stuff. Like I just, it was all about that because I wanted to actually make video games at one point when I was young and I was just enamored. And so it's funny because it was all just shapes and forms though. You know, I remember drawing and drawing and drawing, but it wasn't like doing portraits like I do now. It wasn't like the human form. I always admired people who could do that. I felt like I never could. <laughs> it might sound really weird, but that's truthfully like, that's the thing is I always admired people who drew really realistically because I didn't think I could. That's that's really interesting, actually, because so many artists start out that way. Like, so many artists just, all they all they did before they ever created any kind of characters, any kind of worlds, any kind of, like, imagery was copy from either video games, from, you know, book covers, from yeah. TV shows, 
you know, from popular culture. And it's really, really interesting because that's how many artists get, artists get their start. And I think that's, but I think there must be something there for you to want to do that because not everybody does that. Yeah, that's true. Well, and I guess you make a good point. Maybe we need to stop being so like, it is probably more normal than I think, right? Because I think, like I said, maybe, <laughs> maybe. No, I'm not saying, oh, you're not normal. <laughs> oh, no, but maybe my idea is antiquated. Maybe, maybe like people aren't sitting outside, like drawing the trees really romantically. You know, like maybe little kids don't do that, like no, from their no. youth. Like maybe I have a really. <laughs> I, I wish they did. That'd be amazing. It does, like, it doesn't sound bad. Don't get, you know no, what I mean? I don't sounds great. If that was how you came up, that's awesome. Like, good for, if you're an artist now, because that's how you started, like, reach out to me, because that's really cool. But, but, but I also think that's, you know, I think it all starts with, like, the seeds of fascination that, yeah. you know, because as you said, you're very much into, into video games, and it's something that we've definitely discussed in the past, which is super interesting. Um, but it's interesting how that kind of fascination has transformed into something very different now. You know, as we were saying, Ada, you you look at one thing, it's like inspiration. You start with in one place. Right. And before you know it, you're doing something that's completely different. But at the same time, it's also still in some way interlinked with video games, which is interesting. And I think, see, here's the thing about it too, is I think what it did, the beautiful part is it cultivated imagination. Yes. And I think that for me is what I recognize is something that was invaluable. And what I do think truly fed into why I do what I do now, because that cultivation of my imagination and, and the way that it still exists within me is I think the reason why it is actually a valid link, you know, like there's yeah. something to that, I think. So I want to ask you about your themes in a minute in your work, but before that, I want to ask you a question, which I kind of didn't put into your notes that I've just typed up because you said something, but uh, seriously though. So I wanted to ask, so colored pencils, yeah. I'm really interested in that medium because when I think about pencils and I think about, drawings i think about three artists in particular so one of them i put on the list to send you his name is ryan dean has he's a good friend of mine now um another artist is an artist called cj hendry who yeah. is um do you know her work oh yeah oh yeah okay oh okay then if you know her work i that's knew her who... work when she was doing pen and then she started using prisma colors and i was like she's using my medium and she's She's incredibly successful. And I was like, this was a couple of years ago, though. I haven't seen her stuff in a while. So I was like, wow, must be nice, CJ. <laughs> it, it's funny because her work is somebody's I've only recently discovered within the last maybe two, three months, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and maybe a bit longer because me and Ryan spoke about her at length for a bit. Um, but her work is really fascinating. I listened to a podcast with her the other day. It was really, really interesting. I'll send it to you, actually. It was super interesting. Yeah. Um, and a third artist is an artist called Mercedes Halmwine, who is one of my favorite artists ever. She, her work has just long been something that I've always just been enamored with for a long time. And everybody uses colored pencils. And I'm kind of just curious, like, how did you get to that medium? Because it's not, because when you think of art, you think automatically of painting. Right. Um, so I'm kind of just curious. I'm just really curious. No, I, th I thank you for asking because there's also, I think, I at least discovered this a few years ago. I don't think it holds as much anymore, but there's sort of a weird thing when it comes to pencils in general that people don't always take it seriously as a medium, like pencils, like you would like not even colored pencils. So then when you throw colored pencils on top of it, I almost think that people just look at it as pretty juvenile. But the reason for me, you know, when I started that last year of high school for me, when I started doing realism, it was with port, it was with graphite, a graphite portrait of myself actually and the thing about it was that's why I fell in love with graphite because there's the technical aspect of it like I wasn't taught I was actually taught to not blend 
I was taught by my art teacher at the time, don't blend because building up value has a clearer, a more, there's more of a brilliance to the final image. I think there's a lot of truth to that, although it's sort of, it's sort of looked upon poorly to not blend because it just seems sort of natural, especially if you're using anything like charcoal, but I've never used those media. I've just always stuck with pencil. Um, but basically it was my love of color that drove me into colored pencils. And it was weird. It was like, it was really essentially that it was like, I love pencils. I love the technical control aspect that you have with pencils versus paint. I had started with pencils. I wasn't taught to use paints really. And I, again, I love that control. And then, so I tried colored pencils and it was like the perfect marriage essentially of that technical aspect, but also the color that I sort of yearned for, because I really, color is just like huge for me. It's nearly as huge as the human form, you know, for me. How forgiving are colored pencils though? They're incredibly unforgiving. They nearly like graphite erases. It's pretty flexible. Colored pencils do not erase. Like you can, you can try. I actually use, when I work, I have the white cap erasers that you'd put on the end of a pencil. I actually use those and I go through them quite often because I don't want to smear other colors on top of other colors, because again, I don't blend. It's just a buildup of values. So blending, if I, if I blend, it's usually incidental because I'm trying to actually erase a mark. And believe me, there are moments where I am holding a pencil very lightly, so yeah. lightly that it will fly out of my hand and then it will nick the surface. And I'm like, mm. and then I take a pencil or I take the eraser and they're, you know, I learn over time. If you're gentle with it, you can massage it out. You put other values, you put the other value back around and you can, you can just dis make it disappear, but essentially it's not. Yeah. Colored pencils are very tricky. They allow you to build layers to a degree, but then different hues interact differently when it comes to building those layers. And that's an aspect of my work that I've explored too, where it's like, what hues cooperate with other hues, what hues don't. It's strange. Like people who paint have, and I'm speaking as a non-painter, I have painted like in terms of, that was one class that I had taken at undergrad. Like I've experienced paints, I've used them. I just never really got, you know, really into them myself yeah. so like I'm, I'm not totally ignorant but i'm also an outsider i digress no. i love apologizing for everything too but the all i was going to say is that you know painters have a very large color palette because they can mix whereas yeah. colored pencils i have a very finite palette my palette is sort of dictated by the company making the brand of pencils i use and there is a bit of like wiggle room because different colors blend like layered with others will produce different effects but at the same time again it's pretty finite like it gets muddy really fast colored pencils can really start to get ugly if you're not careful but isn't doesn't that work to your advantage in a way because it's easy for you yeah. to create more of a signature style with a certain color treatments and color theory and kind of like having your own color story and kind of having your own brand colors it's much easier for you then if you have a like a more like that limitation is actually also quite freeing because it means that you don't have to worry about mixing paint and hoping that the next day it's going to be the same shade that like you know exactly what you're working with is going to work exactly tomorrow how it was yesterday like there's that sense of security in that work that actually kind of is probably a lot better 
I think in some aspects, you really are right. And that's the thing, it reminds me, I am enamored with certain colors and I, I'm ena- and I can tell you what colors those are, you know, like oh, I yeah. can tell, name those. And I, I can name, like my palettes, that's the thing too, is like my color palettes are very specific because they are a standardized set of named values, you know, I will say, and I will, I won't go on a tangent with this, but the I use very, I use high quality pencils, but unfortunately they aren't ideal and they are soft core so they can break. So it does become really challenging for me sometimes when I go to sharpen a pencil and it will just shatter and it will just completely shred. And then you go to sharpen it again and it's broken down the core, like halfway down the pencil. So then this pencil that you had full size is now half size within seconds. And you're like, Think it to yourself, well, when's the next time I'm putting an order in? Well, I wasn't going to do that till the end of the month. Well, now I might need to do that now, you know, and then things get back ordered. So sometimes it would be nice if I just had like a bucket of white and a bucket of blue (laughs) that could just come together. So pros and cons with everything, you know? I don't think I have put any questions about color into your interview notes, and I'm going to change that in a minute. Oh no, just let it dry. Hey, let it drive. Let the conversation drive because this is great. I'm glad you asked. Okay. That stuff. I'm just I'm just thinking. So actually, let's ask now. So what is your favorite color to use? See, and it kind of changes too, depending on like what body of work and stuff. My see the series windows that I produced 14 new pieces in this past January through Mar through April, May, about about that series has a very strict six color palette. And within those pieces, each value that I use, each one of those hues has different agency. And one of the aspects of me is I always sort of recognize which value was like the starring role of a piece, which sounds strange, but it's just the one that I felt did something extra, did something extraordinary. And so I actually, right now I'm working on a new body of work called the last five years that has a much far more reaching color palette. And when I sign those works, I actually specifically choose the color that I felt was strongest in that piece by some, somehow just for some feeling it's a weird thing. I don't know. I just love doing it. But like, so in saying that, like my love does shift, but like there's, there's a couple of values like blue violet Lake is a value. That's like a blue verging towards violet it's a lighter blue that i've just loved for years i really love like jade green is a value that i love i use prismacolor premieres right now so if anybody's like wondering where these names are it's their names from that that specific you know palette but i'm just thinking like you know certain values certain values frustrate me so badly because they were just gummy like you some some of them are they're such a pain they're so it's so weird because they they have they have a personality in the way that they apply to the surface. I'm not trying to try to personify them. I'm not trying yeah. to describe them as saying that they have like a, any sort of spirit energy because believe me, I'm not not in the slightest suggesting that. It's but there is a truth to the fact that like they literally apply to the page differently than others. And for me, it's like they just seem bratty. Like when you apply two values together. Sometimes they don't want to cooperate. Like I can tell you a value that I really like don't like is lemon yellow because it gets nasty really fast and it does not like anything else, you know? So like when you try to add it, but even when I'm telling you that I'm like, I'm taking in all of that. You know what I mean? Like through, through years of doing this, I'm like, 
well, that's a that's a, a value that's a pain and doesn't like. So eventually, that's probably going to find its way into work because yeah. that aspect of it is a, is a choice I can make to use for the piece. If that makes sense, you know, course, it's yeah. like Absolutely. I'm understanding how these tools work and how these colors work on a like one to one basis, and that helps me know like what is in my toolbox, you know, for expression. And do you ever think about, or like how often do you think about kind of like the emotional cues of colors, like using like certain colors to elicit certain emotions from the viewer? Is that something that you think about? Or is it more just like what you're interested in? See, that's where like the expressionist aspect of my work comes in because I describe my work as neo-figurative and neo-expressionism as sort of like a collision. And for me, the expressionism aspect of it, that comes from a place of the emotions and ideas inform what colors I choose essentially. And so I'm not really thinking about the way those colors affect the viewer in a lot of ways. In some ways I am, but in more ways than none, I'm trying to listen inside me. I'm trying to listen for what I'm feeling, what the ideas are asking for. And that's what's trying to drive the values for me, what hues I'm selecting. Because if I... The thing about color that's also really interesting is that color, I think, tends to have a lot of symbolism, but that symbolism shifts from era to era, like crazy, you know, like it's constantly shifting. So what I was, one thing I was taught that I learned about in, it was like an art as literature course that wasn't even in the art department when I was in school was that you really shouldn't consider certain values as particularly symbolic of certain things. And the best example that I was given in this secular class was depictions of Christ, because when Christ was depicted in art in the Renaissance era, pink and rose were typically more male associated. And so you would then see him depicted with pink and rose garments. And you would see the Blessed Virgin Mary in that same time period depicted in blue because the lighter blue was associated for like a feminine characteristic. Now, in in the modern era, that is literally just flip-flopped, you know? Yeah, of course, yeah. So that's why, like, we can't, like, attach symbolism to color, so I try not to. And that's why I also try not to base how my viewer is going to feel based in the colors i sort of it's weird though because again i'm sort of starting within myself right i'm i'm looking at what are the ideas and emotions what colors are being asked for because of those ideas and emotions and i have to do as the artist i believe i'm the facilitator to then breathe life into the work using those colors trusting that the viewer will have that experience by way of what that viewer sees so it's weird you know i'm I'm aware of the work being seen. Like art is made to be shared. Art is made to be viewed. So I'm aware always that there is an end viewer that somebody is going to be experiencing this work, but I have to start from within and I have to just trust that what's coming from within manifests in something that can be shared so that I'm communicating with you something inside of me that we meet in the middle that is this work. I think that's a good point because art is a form of communication. That's what art is. Yeah. Art is a way to have a conversation about something that you can't quite talk about or you may not be able to put into words, you know, for the most part. Like, as I say to everybody, or at least my kind of general thoughts on art, is that art is the um, externalization of the internal. 
that's the way art, that's what art is you know oh my gosh i feel so, like you stole that from me that's so true <laughs> like it's so true to me i'm serious that is i so might have to be me. honest um yeah. no no no, I'm, no don't get me wrong i think i'm i'm just yes like i can't even say yes more to that yes so art is as i said art is you know the externalization of the internal self and i think we all have something we want to say when we just might not know how to say it and art is the perfect medium to express ideas and communicate with people um, even if it's subconscious, even if we don't really know why we're creating the work we create, I think it's important to create it because you don't know who you're going to touch. You don't know who you're going to impact. And I think we actually take kind of like the reach of our work for granted because we assume that it's going to get popular real soon and it's not. It might impact people in ways that you may never understand, that you it may never come back to to kind of showcase itself in your lifetime. You don't know. Um, so yeah, that's why I think I, that's why I think I was powerful at least. I like that. Well, see, that's what what you're saying too is beautiful. And what I want to like go forward more with that is I think that's what makes people artists. It's us. It's those of us who like the only way we can express these things is through that medium. I think all of us naturally, we like we're social creatures as human beings. Like we want to express, we want to share, we want to communicate. It's natural for us. I think when people can only do that through the visual medium, that's what makes them artists, you know? I think, and but other people like find those ways of expression in different ways. And that's why I think this life is so beautiful because we were all made for that role we've been given to do that we feel that calling towards. And if we are actively doing that and sincerely doing that, no matter how daunting it may seem or how mundane it may seem, somehow we are doing good and there will be fulfillment, right? Like it's about seeking, like, what is it that fulfills you? What is it that you receive fulfillment from? And I believe that that is like a really good indicator of what you were made to do, what your calling is, you know? And so that's the thing is it's like, I, I, that's why I know people have said like, everybody's an artist. And I think in one hand, sure, you're right. But I think it's better to say that like we all just want to communicate and express from within ourselves but that's not yeah. necessarily going to manifest in a, an artistic way on the surface right like i think some people express themselves through different work they do you know i think there yeah. are people like for example my dad i only recently sort of found this out my father is an electrical contractor which basically means he's an electrician who does his own jobs and has a business and is sort of like in charge of doing everything and like i didn't realize how when I was younger, I always thought that he was doing it because he had to, because he was just, you know, had to make money to survive sort of situation. But I found out like on the, over the past like year or so that he's really passionate about what he does. And he's really passionate about his, his, like the craft of it and the finished product, despite all the hardships is incredibly gratifying for him, which I just thought was incredibly like exciting to hear because Again, growing up, I was sort of under that notion that, oh, he hates what he, like, you know, you hate what you do. But I think the truth is for somebody like him, he, the way that he is expressing, like, just from within himself, like that fulfillment's coming from his finished product in a different way, you know? So I guess the reason I say that is because I just want to, I don't know, I want to speak for like humanity, you know, like I want to speak for all of us that it's like, just because art isn't your calling doesn't mean that what you like you aren't valuable you know it doesn't mean that you're yeah. not like you're not going to find fulfillment in this life like your calling is unique to you you know but yeah i'm getting a little bit maybe That's a little fine. bit too far reaching but yeah i just oh i couldn't help it but i think yeah. it is actually a very nice segue into the idea of like you know your work is figurative mm-hmm. you know and i'm 
and you know which denotes you know the human condition which is you know a topic a lot of artists look at and i'm just kind of curious like what interests you specifically about figurative work and the human condition and, and kind of like how does it add to the overall narrative of human existence i think like man I love humanity. Maybe the last point got into that a little bit too much. I don't know what it is. And what's weird is it's like, I love my solitude though. You know, like I work and live in (laughs) solitude and I prefer it like wholeheartedly, but I also love, but I love life. Like I love humanity. And I, so I think the reason why the figure has always been central to me is because I want to like I want to connect us together somehow and so human nature itself like our emotions that we share our relationships with one another just the way that we live and operate and I describe it sometimes as just like the mode of life flowing like ebbing and flowing is just what really inspires me and these are the things I want to express and I've just always found that expressing them through the human form gives them I don't know. It just seems like my, that's why it's my vessel of expression. It just feels like the penultimate of what I could really do when it comes to the visual medium. I think penultimate actually means secondary, but it's it truly like, yeah, it's truly like the ultimate. I think penultimate only in the sense that where I'm trying to express these ideas and these things using the figure. I, I also really think and I've discovered this over time because like I shared earlier, I come from a background that isn't necessarily in the visual arts. Using figures and depicting figures realistically gives an entry point to folks who wouldn't necessarily be privy to contemporary art. I found that over time, a lot of people in my life who don't necessarily fully understand what I do still appreciate what I do because they can recognize a well-rendered figure. Oftentimes that troubles me though, because if you measure my art on its value, if we measure the merit of my work, I should say, based on how well I render a figure, then you're losing the mark completely, obviously, because it's simply a tool. But the thing is though, I think it offers people an entry point. And I think that that entry point can help elicit the experience that I want them to have, because it's again, trying to drive them towards the emotions and ideas. So on one hand, I love that. I I guess the figure is so multifaceted and the figure feels like it is just countlessly flexible when it comes to modes of expression. Like it feels like I can utilize the figure to express so, so many diverse and rich things that I will never run out. And it also feels like it we empathize when we see the human form anytime when we see one another. I think there's something deep within us that naturally tends us towards empathizing with someone else who is of our species, of the humankind. And, and again, there's just that entry point for any viewer of, of the work who isn't necessarily connected to contemporary art, because that's the thing. I'm interested in making highbrow contemporary art that is maybe dumb as it may sound that matters and that lasts in our history for some reason. Like I don't do it because I'm trying to become this major star to last all the ages. It's just that I feel this duty and this responsibility to produce work of the highest and utmost value so that it lasts because for some reason, that's just what I feel inside of me. You know, like I want it to stand next to Warhol's work. I want to stand next to Kandinsky's work. I want to stand next to the greats because I want it to matter. 
You know, like I wanted to sit aside Starry Night and the Mona Lisa because that's just the gravitas of what I feel inside of me. You know, it's not about saying that I'm trying to reinvent art or doing anything clever. No, it's just for some reason that's been part of my drive and my call with this is it's like it's about producing what feels so dire and so grave for me within me, I guess. So that's a very powerful way to think, I think. That's a very powerful way to think. And it's nice to hear that you're you're deeply embedded in knowing that this is what you want to do and that, you know, it actually means a lot to you. Like, that's what I, I actually really like, the fact that you're speaking with so much passion and emotion. And like, that's nice to hear. It's not just, oh, I can create work that looks nice. People will pay me for it. You know, it's not that. It's so much more deeper. You know, it, it matters to you. And I think that's honestly the best thing because that means like anything you make, no matter how quote unquote successful it is, you, you're making it with 100% effort. You're making it because you felt compelled to make it. You're making because you need to make it. Yeah. And I really oh, respect yeah. that. I really respect that because it's so easy. It could be so easy because it's not actually easy, but it could be so easy to make stuff that's going to be very commodity, you know, commodified. So that's very, very kind of, you know, factory driven. So that's very kind of derivative. So that's going to be very copied, uh, you know, and kind of create stuff on mass and, you know, make a lot of money, you know, through uh, reproductions and all that kind of stuff, as opposed to making something unique make something that actually says something and has a deeper message because i think your your talk about entry points is really interesting so it made me think like maybe that's why we have like viral art because people who don't know art who aren't involved in the art world they just take everything for face value they see oh this image is a pretty image this must be cool i'll like it as opposed to like a lot of the work that in very many very many ways is the best kind of work that has a deeper message it gets lost because people don't understand that message, not because they don't want to take the time, but because they don't have the time to take. So that's a really interesting point you've made. That's made me think about kind of like, oh, actually, that's probably why we're in this current society with the way art, the art world is, which I don't want to get into just yet. But it just makes me think about that. It's very, I it's jump, very interesting. I listen, though, I want to jump on that point like I, really hard is- because you're, you're so right. I, the thing about it is I truly believe social media and the internet, we've become conditioned. We're conditioned to to soak up images. We're conditioned to soak up images that fly across our screens in rapid, rapid succession. And you're right. It comes down to, do I like this or not? And then it's thrown away. Art is not supposed to be like that. Art is not meant to be ingested like a huge gulp in an instant. It's not instantaneous. Art is meant to be experienced in person, one-on-one. And yes, yes, everyone, like I get it. We can't do that because we can't be in all these places to soak up art. So the internet at least lets us get a, a passing glance. And that's true. But art, it's not art's fault that we live in the society. You know, it's not the fault of art that it takes so much to view it. If people valued art the way that they value the things, I guess, that are important to them nowadays, which obviously goes different for everybody. But my, my point is, if people really valued art the way I think it was meant to be valued and sought it out and went to go see it and understood that, we wouldn't have this problem, I think, in society where art is looked down upon or where art is maligned. And people would actually invest it. They would understand why it matters to actually own and actually appreciate and experience work. And we would have I think we'd have an incredible thriving art market. And finally, we would see that bridge, that gap, you know, bridged between main, main, like main society and then the art society. Because again, I feel like you're right. We live in like this era too, where there's a chasm between 
people who do arts, like artsy fartsy people, so to speak, and then just mainstream culture. But the problem I think is because the internet quite literally conditions us to just like soak up everything. We live in this like consumption society, this commoditization society where everything is fast paced and churned out and churned out. And art, like fine art is not meant to, yes, it's entertainment in some aspect, but it's not meant to be ingested the same way as commercially made entertainment is. Like I was about to say, don't even get me started. But then, then again, we're already like, that's what this conversation kind of is about anyway. So it's like, so I guess I. I keep going. But that's the thing is, it's just, it's tiring. You know, it's so tiring. And it's hard as artists, because you're right. Like, there's like a temptation to create work that is appealing. There's a temptation to create work that's just going to catch the eye that's going to be, you know, stay on the cutting edge, you know, and it's like, if you're doing that, you're missing the point. And I will say as an artist too, it's hard. It's hard going on social media and seeing this work that's just like sold, 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 you know? And it's a lot of times, and, and thankfully like you grow as an artist, you get through this stuff. Like all, I look at all this bad stuff that happens to an artist is just fodder for growth. You know what I mean? Like you get through it, you get better. So don't get me wrong. I'm not like hung up on these things in a bad way, but I think it's really important to recognize that you know, when you pour your heart and soul into your work, and I, I want to speak to other artists out there who understand that, where it's like, you know, you're really pouring yourself in, you feel this is your call, and you're really struggling because you're not seeing it catch on the way you're seeing like all of this other work that seems to just be flying off the shelf, so to speak. It can be very exhausting. It can be very tiring because it's, you start to question yourself. It's like, what am I doing yeah. wrong? You know, like I, you know, thank you, Aaron, for mentioning like a little bit ago, like speaking with so much authority and my passion. Yeah. But I also wanted to interject in there that like I am an incredibly insecure person, though. You know, I'm constantly putting myself through the ringer. I, it's funny, nobody had to convince me that I was an artist more than me. You know, I constantly discern, and that's the thing is about it too, is like I'm always vetting it. You know, I'm always vetting this call. I'm like, you know what, if this is a good, valid call, then you know what, it's going to work out. And it's like, it's you always kind of live with a bit of uncertainty. And I believe that on this side, I believe that on this side of life, you're always going to live under a little bit of uncertainty because anything worth doing is always going to be risk and unsure. You know, like we're never going to yeah. get like, <laughs> I told this, I told this to my mom and I'm just going to share it with you. You know, it's like, God's not going to send you a postcard in the mail one day. That's going to say, this is what you're supposed to do. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that day is yeah. never going to come. You're supposed to just use what you've been given and trust. You know what I mean? That like, Absolutely. I, I'm feeling this is what my drive, my call is. And so I'm going to do that. You know, it's like, we can't, you can't wait for the postcard to show up in the mail. Cause that's not going to, if it, if that was how life worked, wow, we would have it pretty made pretty easy, but man, believe me. It's always challenging. There's as an artist, I feel like you're always gonna struggle with doubt. You're always gonna struggle with all that stuff. It's so interesting because there are so many conversations I've had and conversations that I will have about self-doubt, about Parson syndrome, about not really knowing your own value, wondering if what you're doing is worth it, wondering if people care. I think that's just a natural state of artists. I think every artist in many, very many ways, whether they're whether they're mature or not, are very insecure, not in a negative sense but just in the sense that always questioning themselves you know because yeah. you never know how your work is being perceived like you never know if what you're doing is making an impact or at least an impact in the way you hope it's being made and you you never yeah. know and even if your piece sells 
You don't know if they're buying your work just because they know you. You don't know if they're buying your work because they like your personality. You don't know if they're buying your work because they like the work on an initial superficial level. You know, you don't know if they connect with your work. You know, they might be doing it to sell it on in three years' time. You don't know. You know, and I think in many ways, which is easier said than done, but it's easier not to get caught in that. Because the problem is, is that definitely through my own personal experience, I've even just running the flying through bar, for instance, like as soon as you get to the headspace of doubting what you do, you would look for reasons to not do it. And that's the the damaging part. Because, you know, yeah. as soon as you get to a point where you're like, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm not making an impact. I feel like you always have to fool yourself. You know, the whole fake it to make it, I think is very true. You always have to fool yourself into believing that what you're doing is reaching people, whether it's it shows in the figures or not. Because if you don't, you're not going to do it. Yeah. You know, you'll give up tomorrow because, you know, no one, no one cares. And if, without getting too philosophical and too kind of wider, deeper, on a deeper level, but like you have to also remember that nobody actually does care. Like we live in a society where everything is so quick. Like you have to really catch people's attention. You have to have deeper conversations. You have to really impact people in yeah. more ways than just the creation of art or just a beautiful image to get their attention. You know, I think I'm not, I'm not saying be nihilistic and be like, you know, oh, the world is doomed and no one's going to care. So I'm not going to try because I don't think that attitude is going to get you anywhere in life. But you also have to remember, don't put so much pressure on yourself because at the end of the day, the people that will resonate with your work will find you. And when they do, you'll have the conversations you want to have. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll be having the kind of discussions you want to have. You'll kind of, you'll get the credit you deserve. But the thing also is, is that and this is a conversation from for later, but I'm going to have it now because we're here. But like your audience, like actually, okay, so how much time do you have for six minutes? Okay, so this is funny for me because the last two days, two separate artists have posted on their timelines, on their Instagrams, on their, on their Instagram. So they're like, oh, hey guys, sorry, I haven't posted. I've been busy doing this. Or hey guys, sorry, I haven't posted. One, this, one lady was like, my camera's broken. The other lady was like, sorry, I've been really busy. I haven't posted anything. And I, and I messaged both of them and I said, look, I said, don't apologize for not creating work. If you want to take a break, if you've got things going on, don't feel compelled to always be creating. Don't put pressure on yourself to always create work because that time could be used for thinking. You know, it's no good creating all the time if you're not thinking about what you're creating. You know, you have all this work, but what are you doing with the work you have? You know? Um, anyway, that's my two cents. <laughs> no, no, that's interesting. Like, and I will say, like, to your point, to, I'm in love with what I do and it's constantly bubbling and it's as an artist, I don't think you ever stop. So it's like on one hand, yes, you have to breathe. You have to break. You have to pause. You have to have balance. But at the same time, like just because I put the pencils down doesn't mean the work stops. My mind is always going. The ideas are always going. And that's the beautiful part because to be honest with you, Aaron, sometimes the remedy for me for producing too much is to keep is produce more. Which sounds paradoxical, but I mean it in the genuine sense of like, I have found that it's just, that's what keeps me going as an artist though. It's like you live under an uncertainty of whether you're going to have inspiration or whether it's going to come or whatever. And I know a lot of artists can deal with that or like writer's block sort of thing, but it's just the the beauty of it is it feeds in like no amount of work you produce, I think is ever going to be enough to satisfy what I feel is like this inner need we have as artists to produce. 
And so I think naturally it's like, I, I agree with you though, like on one aspect, the social media aspect, I think adds a, a pressure for us to be producing, to be content pushing, you know, but I think that that's different than just that na- that true drive to create, because remember if social media died tomorrow and it was all gone. And I mean, let's face it, like Leonardo da Vinci didn't have Instagram to put content out weekly on, you know, but he still produced an incredible amount of work. Clearly, clearly there was something in him that was nudging him to produce that wasn't fueled by that audience that's sort of like right in his grasp. Because on one hand, that audience being there through social media is great. But on the other hand, I think it's really problematic because like you said, you run into issues where you feel like if you're not keeping the public, the viewing public happy, then you were going to lose them or they're going to fall off. But I, I think just to go back a little bit on your, on, on that tangent, once you mentioned earlier too, though, like that's the thing about it is that audience that we're, we're producing work that does matter. And if you are on this journey, if this is sincere for you, like those, those temptations towards doubt, like, yes, don't listen to them. And I think one thing that I found as an artist is that like, even in the hardships, like especially financial hardships, when the sales aren't necessarily there, like a lot of other little beautiful road signs come up, like a lot of other little things come up that are really encouraging. And that's what I want to encourage everybody with. It's like, try to look past what you can see, you know, try to look past what you're seeing, like with your eyes. And I mean that in a serious sense, like focus on what you have, focus on what is coming up, you know, because if your sales aren't there right now, what other stuff is, are there these great opportunities that are arising? You know, did, did something come up that maybe didn't manifest the fruits of itself immediately how you would expect, but what's going to come down the road? Like what could, what could proliferate beyond that? You know? So it's like, I really want to encourage anybody struggling with doubt because I think that's the thing about it is fight through that. And you'll start to see where, wait a minute, there's, you're going to get that encouragement because if we're on, if you're on the call, that's for you. If you're on, if you're following the path that's made for you, you're going to get those reassurances. I promise, you know, like even if it takes time, even if it takes it takes looking differently than you see, you know, like you don't focus so much on the number. Like you said, don't focus on the figures truly. And yeah, the audience is there, you know, like I I'll, I'll, I'll speak down to nihilism because it's like, that's the thing is it's like, if we're doing what we're supposed to do, then somehow somewhere, somewhere in this world or this, the time, like whether it's in our time or not, it's going to resonate. It's going to touch the hearts and minds of folks, you know? Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that's a good point you raised. I guess I could be like a like horrible, like, I, if anything, you can fault me for being a horrible, hopeful, hopeful, severely hopeful optimist. If not, And I'll die on that hill. I'll die on that hill. <laughs> so before I ask you about your series of work, there's two questions I want to ask you. Um, so the first one is the idea of introversion and extroversion. Um, mm-hmm. Because there was a uh, photographer, an artist of photographer and photographer, artist photographer same thing um called i'm surrounded by such a lovely guy like one of the nicest people i've ever met i meet a lot of nice people to be fair um such a such a lovely person you know when people are really lovely just like this person is great he's one of those people whose work is incredible but we were talking we had a conversation a while ago about introversion and extroversion because a lot of artists are typically introverted but i just kind of wondered like would you say like you know are you introverted are you extroverted are you somewhere in the middle and how has it affected kind of like the way in which you create work I am totally introverted. And I mentioned that earlier where like, yeah. I love the solitude. I love working in solitude, but I will say that when I'm in, 
in that setting where I feel I'm, I'm with somebody who wants to hear about the work, who is genuinely appreciative and in the sense of wanting to know and wanting to have that experience, I can really go off. I can really like tire you out with my words because I love, I am so in love with the work. So it's, it's weird. I have social anxiety a lot. Uh, so typically I tend to like really issue any conversation where I'm going to be having to be with people in a social setting. You know, I don't care for that again, though, when it's in service of the work in the, in a proper setting like that, I will, I absolutely will go off, but I, I will shut down though, because of my insecurity, if I feel somebody doesn't want to hear, and that ultimately comes down to the fact that I worry about just like putting something on somebody they don't want, you know, like sharing when they don't want to hear it. And it's not about the work in that sense. It's unfortunately, I think a quality of me is wanting to keep people happy. And I've had to be, I'm growing through that, but I definitely still have a long way to go trying to get through like that people pleaser mentality. And so I always worry about like the, my audience, I always worry about who's listening. And I think that's actually to some extent good, right? Because as an artist, I, well, I should be thinking about my viewer. I should be thinking about, of course the audience. Um, but I think, and also it can be a flaw for me sometimes too, or just a hang up where I'm like way too overly concerned that I'm just bogging somebody down. And that, you know, those demons that I have telling me that, you know, they don't want to hear, they don't want to hear are things I have to fight against too a lot of times. So truthfully, I'm an introvert. Socially, I definitely feel that. But like, again, get me in the right conversation. And I love, I love sharing. I love one-on-one. -on -one. Like I, I sound stupid, but like this, no. doing this with you is excellent because I feel like it's a place where you want to hear about the work yeah. and it's just the two of us and people are going to hear this. And like, you know, technically there are a lot of people who will hear this outside of the two of us, like more than yeah. us will hear this. Right. But it's oh, yeah. like, it feels very safe for me because it's static and it's just like with the writing, you know, it's like, yeah. I can share it and people can take it in if they want to. And hopefully it inspires them. It's not like in, yeah, in, in the moments I'm, that's a long winded answer to introvert or extroverted, but that's seriously, that's it's perfect. really layered for me. It's weird. But I love the fact that you're very much hitting the nail on the head when it comes to like, this is exactly what I do this for. Like I don't do this for the download numbers because I don't really care about them really. I care about the connections I forge and the conversations I have and like how comfortable people are with talking because I, I always feel like every artist wants to talk about their work. They just need the space in which they're comfortable to talk about it because yeah. it's not always the gallery space. If you have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 people come up to you, talk to you about your work, asking you the same questions over and over again, you're going to get tired. You're not going to want to have that conversation. If you're oh. sitting down one-on-one -on -one with someone who actually cares and actually has taken the time to look at your work and taking the time to kind of consider your work, especially before approaching you, I think you're going to have a better conversation and that's yeah. going to be better for you because hopefully this is like a little mini art therapy session. Hopefully it makes you think about your own work in, in different ways and Hopefully there's questions that I've asked you that no one's asked you before or that you've never thought about, you know, hopefully. And even if not, that's also cool. You know, it's, I do this for very selfish reasons because I'm very similar. Like I'm not a huge social person. I don't go out all that much. I'm not necessarily great. I mean, I'm not bad, but I'm not great in the real world necessarily. And this is like a safe space for me to talk to people. This is the way that I remain social and have conversations. So I think it works out very well, you know. I agree. Anyways.
let's get in to your work. But actually, now I've said that before I do, I have one more question, which is about your work, but it's, it's a tricky question. And it's a question I actually really love to ask any artist that I, when I find out that they draw from photographs or they paint from photographs. Um, so, because you said it earlier, I was like, oh, I have to add this question to the list. So the question is, what does a piece of art do that a photograph doesn't? I think there's a level of intimacy when you see a painting or a drawing of like, let's say an exact image. And ultimately my reference images are a part of the process, but they're sort of like, again, one of those tools that I'm using in order to breathe life into the final work. And I think that also speaks to like my process in general, where it's like, I typically, it's not like I'm going to render one-to-one from the photograph. It, it's a really about learning like what is necessary. And so in some instances, it's going to diverge. That's why it's a reference image. You know, it's maybe going to be more, especially with what I do with realism. Yes. In instances, I'm going to depict the figure in a very realistic sense from what I see with the image. But oftentimes I'm going to use the reference image in different ways if I need to, you know? So I think, I think the question is, I don't like the question in a lot of ways because it, it limits photography in like, and that's what I don't want to do because photography is an artistic medium and that's, what's really important to remember. And so I think for me, it comes back to that idea I spoke on earlier where it's art by whatever means necessary. And for me, that means these reference images. I will even say some of my current, current work that I've been like, just inspired with over the past month, I've actually been using a, a hand mirror. I've actually been using a hand mirror with like myself to try to like just study like form of the human face and form of like some like my like hand or foot, certain things like that, where I want to see like what that approach is, you know, it's like, it's more fast and loose to be doing something like that. And it's, it's a different effect. And it's interesting because I don't want to lose the level of intricacy Obviously, when you have a static image that's not changing, it allows you to really focus on those details that aren't going to move. When you're using something like a hand mirror in real time, you're becoming reliant on shadows in real time and form in real time and your own ability to sort of like keep steady. But I feel it adds like this layer of dynamism that both frees and creates a greater sense of depth. So I guess what I'm getting at is it's like, for me, I use these reference images and they're a part of the process and I'm very protective of them too. Like I don't share any of my reference images. I have thousands and thousands of my computer, you know, and many, many that were never used, but that's the thing is I consider them part of the process because it's like part of me trying to find how the ideas and emotions need manifest. It's me trying to seek. And that's the point of my photo shoots. It's like, Sometimes it's very specific on what I need when it comes to form. Other times I will deliberately share bits and pieces of ideas and emotions with the model I'm working with so that I can get something out of them, knowing full well what I want, but not telling them that explicitly because I want them to arrive at it naturally. Okay. And so there's a lot of just gray area for me when it comes to that. And I think, I don't know. Yeah, photography is interesting, right? Because it's like we utilize it just like a layman can utilize photography in their daily life, just do for document documentary purposes. And it's, again, a, a weird sort of situation, I think, where we have like the utilitarian aspect of creating and creation and work and play. 
that sort of gets intermixed, you know, that it's with art, it's not black and white. And I often think people use that to art's detriment. Like, you know, as an artist, I feel unnecessary. I feel like art is unnecessary. And yet at the same time, I feel like that's what makes it so essential to human life is it's like, it's so dire and important. And yet at the same time, it really serves no function you would think. But I think that's the irony is that it really truly does. And so I think that's why people can sometimes look at art as being useless because it doesn't serve a utilitarian purpose because of the society we just kind of live in at times, you know? Yeah. So that's like a really big tangent. But, no, but that's a good point. Cause it's like when we were at the peak of the pandemic, you know, people published a study on like what are the kind of most important and least important jobs. And the least important jobs were like artists. But then people turned around and were like, but if there's no artists in the world, the world would be bland. So I think just because we assume something is necessary doesn't mean it actually truly is necessary. And I think art is very important. I think art's more important than the general public give it credit for, personally. Yeah, I think it's, I literally think somehow, somehow it's incredibly critical. And it's something that I just learn and feel more over time. You know, it's like, it's literally like a feeling something over time, you just kind of grows within you. It's one of those things we sort of live in uncertainty of like somehow it is incredibly critical in other ways it's like not you know i'm i'm very contemplative and that's a part of my practice is like constantly i'm always thinking i'm always sort of deliberating i'm always sort of contemplating more the world and life and stuff and i love that i revel in it and so you know i do think about a lot of this stuff from time to time and one of the things that was really beautiful that i heard in a podcast i was listening to was art is the sabbath of life like somehow or actually there was in a book that I read from a podcast I listened to that was suggested to me. And it's a like, art is so necessary because it gives us that reprieve. It gives us that chance to celebrate, to feast from daily life. And it, it refreshes our souls somehow that no other work really can in this life, you know? But again, that still sort of remains a mystery, right? Like the way that I think that operates inside of us will always sort of remain a mystery. And again, those aren't my, that, that is quite literally taken from, um, a book. So it's not, I don't want that attributed to me that those words, but I do think it's so true. And I think it speaks to the a truth of our existence that somehow art fills this sort of need we have for mystery and transcendence as human beings beyond like just what we see around us, you know? So I think that's part of part of the component of why it's necessary, but I mean, yeah, it still doesn't change the fact that I feel unnecessary as an artist, right? Like in the day-to-day, -day, in the humdrum, it's it's hard as an artist, like working, you know? But that's also pretty, that's pretty sad though, because it's like you are contributing to society. It just may not be in the same kind of status as like a doctor or a lawyer, but you are still contributing right. to society. You're not doing nothing with your time, you know? And right. it's a I think that's a shame because like you're putting your life into your work. It's not just about, oh, I'm creating a picture I'm just drawing every Sunday evening for like an hour. It's like you're putting your time and your life into your work. Like your art is a documentation of your life. It's an archive of your life. It's an archive of your feelings. You know, the work you created five years ago was how you were feeling five years ago, you know? And I think that's what we fail to sometimes understand is that like an art is more than just a pretty picture. An art is a reputation of the person creating that image. And I think if we kind of thought about art more in terms of like in relation to the person creating it, I think we'd have a better kind of understanding of how and why art is important, really. I think, but 
Yeah. No, I agree. But I want to like strike you on that a little bit because yeah. there was, and this is one of the questions you asked me, which was really good. And this is something that's come up in my life. Like my mother, for example, I, I felt like I had to like teach her on this. And, and don't get me wrong, mom, if you ever hear this, but like I, um, cause she might one day, who knows, but like, Never know. I, I know it's true. It's true. She might, I, I know she might. Um, like if we limit artists to creating just from within themselves, I think it's terrible. I think it's a terrible thing to do because I think it limits what an artist is truly capable of. And I think that's the storytelling aspect of an artist and not storytelling in like the once upon a time aspect. I mean, like that comes back to the whole idea of, of imagination. It's like artists are given this gift to produce not necessarily from what they've experienced, but something that can speak to the experiences of other and others. And I think that's what's so critical to remember is it's like, if we look at all art of an artist as stuff that they went through and experienced, I think it can be damaging to the artist because it can give us a false perception of them. I think if we look at everything that an artist produces as being wholly from them and wholly their experience, then we're going to have a very misconstrued understanding. I think naturally we want to do that. I think naturally when we see somebody produce, we want to say, oh, that must just naturally be them. That's that person. That's from that person. But I think in reality, an artist is taking from this life. It's taking from the experience that the artist is having, the experiences of those around them, and the experiences that they're perceiving from this world and taking, and that's what is digested and becomes the work, which allows the artist to have part of themselves in the work, while at the same time being able to like share other ideas. Like there's this for some reason over the past like two years, this notion of being a proprietor of dreams has come to my mind. It feels like something that is part of me as an artist, that I'm a proprietor of dreams. And the reason I feel that is because it's like, I am made to share like the intricacies, these intimate, deep points of our human experience. And it's not just, but not necessarily the ones that I've had. Like they don't all have to be ones that I've had. It's just, I feel like somehow I am meant to capture things that other people can say yes to that maybe I myself don't even fully grasp because it's something that I'm taking in from this world around us. And that's why I'm so inspired by life and ebb and flow of life, because as an artist, I'm an observer, you know, like as an artist, I'm, I constantly soak in this world and soak in this life. So I'm not necessarily experiencing all the things that I'm sharing in my work, but there's, there's certainly always going to be a component of it. Like, I think one thing, I think the way to look at it is like all artwork from an artist will reflect something of that artist, but I don't think that all artwork of an artist reflects that artist sort of like full stop, you know, like I think it needs conditioned that, um, that you don't necessarily have to produce just from like, it's all coming from within you. Sure. You're the machine. Like, I think I'm the machine, you know, like I think I am like out or input comes in from the world. I am the synthesizer. And then it comes out as the work, you know, like I, it's not to say that I experienced all that stuff firsthand. It's like, it's input for me. It's like sensory experience that wasn't necessarily a quality of my character. You know, if I wanted to make, I think some artists will make work that is just all from them. Some artists will make work that's has nothing to do with them, you know? And, but at the end of the day, I think there's always going to be a degree of them within it, but I'm kind of going in circles here, but that's the thing. That's where, that's where it's important. And I just want to share 
I have to share this and it's going to get, it's going to sound so goofy. It sounds like I'm going on these like philosophical tangents and all of a sudden he's bringing in this example and it's going to be like, you have lost me trills. You are crazy. And that's fine. But I will, I will die on this hill. One of my, I love music. It's huge for me. It's majorly, majorly huge for my process. And one of my favorite musicians is Taylor Swift. And that might sound so crazy, but the reason is I think her and I produce work in a very similar way. And the reason why I love her so much and I value her writing, I value what she produces so much is because she is like the case of people assuming that everything she produces is literally from her own experience. When in reality, she has made it clear and tried to make it clear. And then people didn't understand. So then she made more work about how they don't understand. And then that became like, and it's incredible because the work she made about how people don't understand became even more phenomenal. And then she continues to produce. And the thing about it is it's like, that's why I really empathize with her because she produces from ideas and things that she takes in with the world around her, not necessarily from her experiences. And yet because of what she does and how popular she is, people just assume that everything she speaks of, everything that she shares through her music is experiences that she's had. But in reality, she's sharing what she's inspired by and what's what's filling her. And that's the same thing for me. And that's what I want to try to emphasize to everybody is it's like, Artists are not just regurgitating themselves. They're not just always throwing themselves at the canvas or throwing themselves in the song. They are taking bits and pieces of their life, of the lives of others. You know, sometimes it's going to be more them than other times. That's, and that is really, really true for my work. And that's something that I really want people to understand about my work too, is that I think I tend to be more explicit about when I am connecting viewers to my own experiences. Like I will share that in an artist statement, for example, but I think it's important to remember that like, it's going to come in different degrees, you know? And I want to, I just, that feels like a PSA that I've been like trying to literally trying to like foghorn out to the world. Like ever since I had that conversation with my mom, like over the past year, I was like, you know, I need to like, I need to like really carry this banner more and be like, Hey, listen, artists are not just regurgitating ourselves. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's about, it's about more than that. If that makes sense, you know, it does make sense. That's a good point. Actually, you're very right. Because it's about your personal experiences, but also ideas. And as you said, the lives of others and just other ideas and thoughts and experiences that you might want to have or that you wish you had, you know? So yeah, no, I agree. I think that's actually interesting. Particularly, okay, so let's get into your work. So, I've re- so the way I want to do this bit, because obviously you've seen the notes, I have a lot of interesting things to ask you about your work. But so I would love for you to give people just an overview of three particular series. So that's Windows, ILY2, and Digital Masquerade. Can you just talk a little bit about each of those series and how they kind of interlink with one another? And then what I want to do is that I have a few questions about each series that I want to ask you or little points that I want to talk to you about. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. If you don't want to do that, that'd be great. Okay. Yeah. No. So like all three of those series are part of a body of work called postmodern and postmodern, if you boil it down is basically the implications, effects, and, and ramifications of the 21st century on humanity and how our 21st century existence like affects us. And so this postmodern body of work I started in 2019, it was built to be this collection of different series that just sort of go on and on and on. And the reason for that is I wanted to create a sort of network that mimics this network that I feel we sort of live in, in the 21st century that we can't escape. Windows as a series is focused on 
the way the human person is warped and diluted when they are transmitted through the internet. And on the other hand, it's also me wrestling with my personal challenges that are related to the internet and then also related to whatever is happening to me in the present while I'm producing those pieces too. So Windows is a very like emotion, emotionally based series, I will say. Um, ILY2 is interesting because it's actually a follow-up to another series in this body of work called ILY. And ILY2 happens to be a finite series, just like ILY was. ILY2 is a place where I was considering those instances where a connection we have online is authentic. And it's where the person on the other side of the screen really does have sincere, authentic feelings for us. And that connection is real. It's just simply having to be, you know, facilitated by technology, so to speak. So there's a lot of triumph and hope in ILY2. And the reason it's a follow-up to ILY was ILY was just a four-piece series that was centered on how we can become attached to photographs in place of another person. And we can end up becoming satisfied with that as a surrogate for the relationship. So ILY was falling in love with images. ILY was falling in love with these lies that photographs online are. Whereas ILY2 sort of like asks the question, but what if that person looking back does feel it as well? So those two kind of go hand in hand. And then Digital Masquerade focuses on the insincerity of the digital space and how we utilize it against one another. So the distinction between Digital Masquerade and Windows is interesting because Digital Masquerade is about our active usage. And there's a lot of negative aspects in that because I think a lot of times it's, you know, sort of like the deceptive nature of it or the malicious nature of how we can use social media and the internet combatively with each other, or just in a, in a sense, like in a way that has culpability upon us. Windows is much more specifically focused on the effects all of that has on us. And again, this is, these series are in the same body of work. So naturally, as they grow and develop, they're meant to converge and diverge in different aspects. In some ways, it's meant to turn into a mess. It's sort of meant to become this collection of series that build and grow and grow, and they can't help but sort of barge into each other to mimic the online space where things are constantly growing and it's sort of, sort of like growing on top of each other and it's becoming really unrefined and it's just a constant sort of network, so to speak. So. I guess I say all of that because it's like, yeah, I'm kind of owning the fact that there's going to be some diverging. There's going to be some converging. I make very specific choices on the compositional level of each series to differentiate them. I make very specific choices in order to make sure that I am staying authentic to my decisions that I've made with these series. And that's how all of my work is. Like my work is very intentional, no matter what I produce. And I'm constantly considering like choices. I'm constantly considering ramifications of those choices because I'm trying to drive the viewer to those ideas and experiences and emotions that I was describing to you. And I know I'm, I'm backtracking a bit, but the reason I just, I describe my work is that neo figurative neo expressionist blend because neo expressionism, typically like you think of um, Jackson Pollock as a major expressionist where he was letting the emotions drive what was coming out on the canvas. I do that, but my emotions are informed by the ideas and they're informed by the choices. And that's why I refer to it as neo-expressionism because the intentionalist aspect of it means that I am being very specific. So it's not, I'm not just letting the emotions become on the canvas. I'm using the emotions as the genesis. And then I'm taking and 
in using choices to breathe life into those emotions, if that makes sense. So it's like, that's why I say neo-expressionism, you know, versus just saying expressionism, though I recognize that it's a very, my work is very emotional. It's coming from a very emotional place. Hope that's like enough framework, maybe too much framework. I don't know. No, that is honestly, I can't tell you how powerful that is because I kind of feel like in some ways, and please don't take this the wrong way, but in some ways I feel like people aren't ready for your work. They're not ready for the amount of depth and the amount of kind of meaning your work has. Because you having just described those series, I'm just like, I, I say that in your work, but that's a lot to process. You know, that's it's a lot to carry. I, I don't yeah. want to interrupt you, but like, you got to understand. That's why I write so much because like, I, I carry all of this and I'm, that's why I'm like, I don't want to forget, <laughs> you know, like I, I genuinely am like, I need to make sure I, I can go on because it's like, I, I, my notes when I'm work, my working notes are like the choices that I'm making because I need to hold to them. Because when I sit down with a, like, I sometimes like at my peak, I'm working on 13 pieces at the same time. And if I'm doing that, I need to make That's sure insane. that like, I, I really need to make sure that I'm not, I'm saying honest, I'm saying true. I'm saying sincere to those choices that I made. You know what I mean? And so like, from for me, sometimes the, the like best relief is like, I wrote the artist statement and it's done and it feels like it's good. And it feels like it's true. You know what I mean? It's like, once that's out there, it's out of here. And it's a little less, that I'm carrying because it's important. That's the thing is it's like, I, that's goes back to that whole aspect of what I feel. I just feel so dire with this work that I produce because it's like, I want to make sure that it's, I, I want to make sure that there's dignity. It's, it's done well. And honestly, Aaron, I, the thing that you said about people not being ready for my work, like I understand exactly what you mean. And in, in a very non-arrogant sense, I really hope that that's clear because like, that's why I want my work to be out there and last because like, I want my work to be the work that you sit with and like you, that this yeah. unfolds. I want to watch it unfold for you. I want it to unfold yeah. differently today and in a week from now, in 20 years from now, in 50 years and a hundred years. I want, I want the layers that are in this work to just like, just flourish. You know what I mean? Because that's why that's to me, what is so exciting about art is when I'm sitting there with it and it's like, boom boom and it's it's blossoms and it grows and it's like that's i'm the type of person who can hear the same song like a thousand times and every time it's going to be new every time there's something new i'm going to get out of it because it's like something there's there's a new layer there's new richness and then i all of a sudden all of a sudden i'm inspired to produce work and then it's like this this is why it doesn't stop for me you know what i mean because it's like it just fuels itself it's so exciting <laughs> i'm just turning into a goofball now because it just gets this is why it's so exciting to do art you know what i mean Woo, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I find it really interesting that your oh work is about the internet, what's being on the internet. And also it's kind of, I think, if I'm being very honest, I'm sure you'd appreciate the honesty. Whether I'll keep this bit in the podcast, I don't know. It's up to you really. But I'm kind of like, I kind of worry for you that maybe people don't have the time to appreciate the work you create in the way you hope they appreciate it. And in the way that it needs to be appreciated because there are a lot of layers, both literally and figuratively. But I do wonder, like, are people going to be invested, their time, invest their time enough into it to really learn about it? That's what I kind of worry. Because, you know, just you describing your series, I'm personally, like, absolutely, this sounds like such an interesting kind of consideration of the world. 
and it's also very personal which i'm really want to get i i want to ask you but obviously don't know how much you want to disclose but i'm kind of really curious like where that where this whole idea and kind of thoughts come from because i think nobody has that kind of perception of the internet nobody thinks about it in that way nobody thinks about the technological age in such such a kind of a global way you know people are like cool this is a really great cat video you know it's kind of like there's i think there's just something really interesting and special about the way you think about the world and that translates to your work which is why i kind of as i said earlier like i kind of worry a little bit that people might not get it in the way you hope that they deserve to because it's online and things online generally just go by in a second you know people will scroll past it without taking the time to think about the context you know well, that's why I mentioned earlier, like, it's not art's fault that the internet sucks, you know what I mean? It's not yeah. art's fault, like, those up. And I guess to go back to your point, I, that's why, like, doing art, being an artist this whole life, like, it all comes back to trust. It all comes back yeah. to trusting that if I produce what's authentic and sincere, like, this is my work. My work is just this, this crazy aggregate of all these ideas, and it's all this, like, rich complexity, and I love it, I revel in it, you know, and it's, I get so excited because it's true, and honestly, Aaron, like, if one person catches one small thing in it that sets their heart on fire, then that's awesome. And then somebody else can find something in it that sets their heart on fire. And that's awesome. And like, maybe there will be people who do see it all. And I hope one day that I can exhaust some art historians like 200 years from now who are like, this trills had art that was like created, like here are all the layers. Like, that's awesome. That's great. I hope that happens one day. But like, Honestly, the people who fall in love with it, I hope that they, if they fall in love with one point at a time, if they sit with it, you like, I feel like certain people will gravitate towards certain aspects and that's okay too. You know, like I put it out there and like, I have to trust, I have to trust that like, it'll find its audience. I have to trust that it'll find those who fall in love. And that's why I think people can fall in love with it in, in like a myriad of different ways. Okay. So it sounds so goofy, but it's like, I feel like I am the champion of the inconsequential. Like, I don't know why I love that idea too. Like, can I was, I was saying earlier, like the prior of dreams is like one thing I've been feeling inside of me, but then like also the champion of the inconsequential, like somehow I feel like what, with what I do, I'm meant to like share how beautiful life is and it's insignificant seemingly moments. Right. Like, I feel like even going back to the whole idea of like feeling unnecessary as an artist, I feel like somehow with what I do, I'm supposed to speak to like how even the tiniest parts of this life matter, that there's meaning in even the tiniest parts. I think that's part of why the reason my work is so nuanced and intricate when it comes to all the layers and choices and stuff is because like, I think, I believe that life has meaning. I believe that life has deep, deep meaning. And I believe that life in each one of our lives has like means something and is important and that there's dignity to the human person. And so I think that's why my work is so granular. I think that's why my work is like that because I just, to a fault, I just think that everything, all these small insignificant things, they matter. I think that it's like, there isn't anything that happens in our lives, these little moments that don't, you know, that are just like passerby, that there's value to us. There's value to our experiences. I want to kind of discuss some kind of like my own thoughts and opinions about your series, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, obviously you've seen the notes, so you know what I'm going to say, which is cool. Yeah. But I'm just, so I just want to start off by saying like, I am very, 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 very intrigued by just the kind of the context of the digital age and the way in which you choose to use that as kind of like the themes within your work, but also because you're creating it for the digital age as well. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I don't know, like I personally love discussing technology, the current age, how, you know, especially how art is conceived and also received in the modern age. Um, and I just feel like your work 
you know, now that I got a chance to really sit down and actually look at it and kind of see it and be like, you know, why do I like this? And ask myself these questions. I just think it's very powerful um, in ways that, you know, people may not understand, but I think, I don't know, there's just something about it that I'm, that deeply fascinates me. Like it really does, like just the visual style you have and the way you've created images and the way you have like, okay, so for Windows, for instance, let's just get into that, I guess. So for instance, like the way that you have images and words combined and then you have lines you have arrows you have so much visual interest for the viewers to look at and kind of decipher it's almost like your your work is like a puzzle and it's like the art the viewer has to de- kind of decipher what they're looking at before they understand the meaning like can you talk a bit about actually your visual style which is like how did that kind of develop and and why do you have like words and imagery combined yeah i from windows specifically like i wanted to create this like it's I mentioned this earlier in our discussion where it's like this series has a very strict six color palette. There are six colors I use for the window series and that is it. The reason for that is because the figure is always depicted monochromatically in sepia. And I want to do that to draw attention to how anytime we're viewing the human person through the internet, it's a flat two-dimensional representation. It's always a lacking representation. And the way that I use form in the window series is meant to evoke sort of the windows we see all around us on the internet and in the online sphere. And the thing, the interesting part about the Windows series too, when I was I was reflecting upon this, it's like I wanted to use these shapes and forms to represent things and to sort of approach things and to approach objects we might recognize. Like it's almost like a re, it's a level of it's like trying to take abstraction and force it into representationalism. And so when you see certain pieces in this series, you might recognize shapes that sort of look like different objects, or you might look at certain forms that recall things. I'm thinking of one piece, um, Windows 014, Autumn. And that piece has a form in the center that is resemblant of a tree trunk. And it's meant to carry that sort of sentiment. But the thing is, it's not a tree trunk and it never really will look like a tree trunk. It just sort of suggests it. The reason why the Windows series does this is because I'm using these boxes, this text and these colors to create imagery in the same way that the online world does. Like the reality is it's all pixels on a screen, no matter what you boil it down. It's a bunch of boxes. It's pictures. It's images. It's all these things. It's text. It's words. It's mental. It's the internet is supposed to show us what's happening, but in reality, it's always just using what it has. It's using a, this weird finite set of tools to depict reality for us to consume and see visually. And we, I think as viewers and users of the internet, we just sort of think that it's reality. We just look at it, it's like, yeah, it's real, but the truth is it's not. And that's why the Windows series meant to do that. Like we have these six colors that if for the series and we have these forms and these shapes and these words and they're never going to approach actual objects but they're going to do their darndest to try just like and again it's meant that aspect of it on that fundamental foundational level to the series is why i i do it in this manner you know because i believe that's the same way the internet works is all of these boxes all of these screens all of these windows on that we see before us like they're always trying to approach reality but they never are they never will because they're just fake interfaces 
They're representational. They depict yeah. something that isn't real, but it's also the depiction that, that exists in real life but is not real online. Because for me, we live, we all live two lives. We live an online life and an, off, an offline life. And I think we don't necessarily always think about that. And I'm actually kind of curious. It's not something about you, but have you ever read? I feel like you're the kind of person who probably has. But have you ever read? Um, I'm going to put his name, uh, Jean Baudrillard. Um, anything by Jean Baudrillard and the idea of um, simulacra and simulation. No, actually, you haven't. No. Okay, I'm writing that down because I think you'd really enjoy it. Because the whole idea and the whole idea and do have you ever kind of looked at the idea of hyper reality and the idea hyper where the real, real becomes yeah the idea where the real becomes more real than the real. Oh no, I haven't. Okay, right. There's a few things I'm totally gonna send you because I think that'd be really interesting. Kind of maybe like readings, like things you could read that might kind of just help you or inspire you. Um, sure, yeah. I send you some YouTube videos and I send you some book suggestions as well. Um, so listen, listen, okay. uh, bear me for one second. No problem. Because it's the whole idea that it's, it's quite hard to describe because it's quite like deep. It's like deep philosophy, but it's the whole idea that things are always representations of things. And that nothing, not nothing exists, because that sounds very nihilistic, and it's not like that. But it's kind of the idea that we're all looking at stuff that doesn't really exist, but we are acting like it does. It's 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 hard to describe. Um, Hyper reality is very interesting, though. Hyper reality is the whole idea that actually, what well, I'm just going to send you. It's easier for me to not to explain it because I'm going to do a terrible job, to be honest. But these are things that I read when I was a student, um, and they're things that really charge my own work and kind of just the way I think about life and kind of I'm really it's just. The kind of reading I used, I used to do that has really, really inspired me. Um, yeah. Just to think about like the nature of reality, because one thing I love to talk about is photographic reality, and, like how real is like like does an image like is a world captured in an image the same as the world we live in? Because it's not because the world we live in moves and an image doesn't. You know that kind of idea. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of interesting ideas about like reality. I love talking about reality. Reality is fascinating. In fact, like I love stuff like in my spare time. Like I love like researching stuff like AIGs, you know, and things like that. And kind of like the way that reality is so loose. We we think we think we live in a world where everything's concrete, but nothing's really concrete. Um which I is have why, a lot of thoughts on this too, because which is, I yeah. Which is why your work speaks to me, because your work talks about this these ideas, even if it's not necessarily directly, it's like kind of an outside consideration. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, because like I let's see I listen to a lot of talks on like moral theology which might sound like it's not in the same realm but it actually talks about reality and like the sense our sense experience and like because when you start if you start to consider the notion of there being a spiritual existence then it starts calling to question these aspects of what is concrete what is physical what isn't physical like it it, like materiality versus immateriality Mm. is very it's something that I think about a lot. I just, yeah. So, oh yeah, I have like, I have a ton of thoughts on this stuff. I'm very curious to know like what hyper reality is. Cause I'm going to, yeah, I, I will look at these things through the lens that I have of, of my understanding of like the material world, you know? Yeah. I think, I just think that'd be, and also another book for you that'd be interesting is, um, the spectacle of society. Yes. The spectacle of society. Society of the Spectacle, I think it is. Um, but it's this idea about 
how everybody loves spectacles. That's what really drives people. Um, the idea of kind of drama and, you know, kind of a compulsion to look at stuff that, you know, is dangerous or whatever, you know, and it's just a really interesting kind of, just an interesting take on like the way our world was headed back then. Cause these are, these are actually all quite old. They, not, none of these are contemporary. These are like within the last 50 to hundred years, but they mean so much nowadays. They mean more nowadays in our, you know, hyper real capitalist technologically advanced society, uh, which is supposedly better, you know? Um, so the next kind of point I wanted to raise about the window series that I'm absolutely enthralled by is your use of .exe in the title names and the underscores and the way in which you present the titles. Okay. Could you talk a bit about like, what was the decision behind that? Cause I'm extremely curious. It's like, it's, it's again, me sort of like co-opting sort of the way that the, the, uh, like computer functionality it's me sort of like borrowing from this lexicon that i don't even understand really as like an outsider i like have a grasp of technology i have a grasp of the way computer processing works but it's always sort of like on an outside view i'm like nobody not versed in it but it does intrigue me and i do like i do like it and so my use of like those sorts of things i think again it comes back to that idea of the like using the vernacular of the computer of the interface in order to try and approach these sort of realities when even though it's only ever a paltry means so it's like it's a weird it's one of those things that's really really felt but it's really really hard to explain where like the titles of the pieces is, are very important one of the aspects of the titles is like the numbering sequential aspect of the series. And that's supposed to speak to like the way the series is iterative and non-going because I also approach the Windows series as being a sort of machine where I am producing work at a very high pace to mimic how the internet is constantly like pushing stuff out at us, how we're constantly receiving more and more, how the human person is constantly like put through the press, so to speak, and so it's image after image after image. And so the numbering with the Windows series and that sort of sequence is meant to evoke that. It's also meant to speak to like the collectability of the series. It's meant to sort of like speak to like the collective nature of art in general, where it's like the commoditization factor where people are meant, it's supposed to appeal to our natural tendency towards collection. It's supposed to appeal to our natural tendency of wanting to own all of them in a series, wanting to capture all of them that are done in sequence. So there's like a few different things going on there at different levels where it's like you're printing page after page after page. And then it's also trying to mimic our tendency towards wanting to collect and our tendency towards wanting the next and the next and the next and the next over and over and over. And then you have these this use of like the computer vernacular to keep it rooted in the fact that it's like the computers are talking to us like it's not us talking to each other it's like always coming through this veil this computer computerized veil that everything we're seeing about one another everything we're experiencing about one another through the internet is always disseminated by the internet sort of means like we're in its playground you know we're always in the internet's playground if we're trying to communicate and share the human person is always at the mercy of the internet it's always at the mercy of the computer screen when we're shared in this way, when we choose to engage with it. And so I think my use of those like words and text and, and the file extensions and stuff, it's, 
it's again, hearkening to the fact that it's all sort of a ruse. It's hearkening to the fact that it's all sort of just forced through screens and processes and what have you. It's very hard to put into words. I don't, uh, truthfully, that is, that yeah. is one aspect. Cause I've been asked that before and it's like, I know, but I also can't articulate it yeah. like, because it fits, yeah. but it doesn't because like in the windows series, we have that. And then in digital masquerade, we have like text that's more like spoken text. that's like more like messages shared and stuff, because again, that series is about like us utilizing it more. So it's like in windows, it's sort of like computer chatter and speech in digital masquerade. It's more like our words that we're trying to chatter and speak, you know? And so, yeah, I, until this moment with you, I don't think I've really ruminated on that enough to sort of even get that much out. But I think that's the truth of it. It's like computer chatter, computer speak, because with Windows, the culpability is not on us. It's it's like this is happening to us. With Digital Masquerade, it's more the culpability on us because we're the users. And this is what the users that are, this is the interactions of the users. Windows is about like what's happening to those users because you know because we signed up for this so to speak or that because we're a part of it and it's there are pieces in the windows series especially that speak to how like my generation our generation because i'm assuming you're like around my age too i actually don't know i'm 29 so, yeah heck yeah okay so our generation didn't sign up for this but we're stuck with it like we don't really you you and i kind of remember the time when it wasn't actually yeah. It yeah. didn't seem like it was all intrusive. Actually, Windows yeah. 98, that piece, one of my newer pieces, is about that. It's about like that this weird misty-eyed nostalgia that I have for the days when computers excited me as a child, and they also didn't feel like yeah. they were going to eat me alive, but now they do. Yeah. Now they have eaten us all alive, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because so, it's like I remember the first day YouTube was a thing. Yeah. I remember that because I remember I was in school and everybody was on YouTube. And it was like this latest cool, crazy thing. I look at it now, it's like a billion dollar company and people are addicted. The internet, the internet was a tool to, for knowledge and now it's just a trap, you know? Right. We have to have it now. And we didn't like, and our generation grew up in the world. Like we remember a little bit of what it was before that, but I think because of the way and when we came into age, it's now essential for daily life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if the internet goes yeah. down, woo, like, and I mean that yeah. sincerely, like, we're yeah. going to have a problem and it's not like to say like, we're going to be bored and we're going to, you know, it's like, we're going to have like some serious problems about yeah. like our like food, like, like food lines and our like government functioning. And like, it's, it's not like we can't watch Netflix. So man, we're going to be real bored. No, it's like, we're going to have some serious infrastructure issues if the internet goes yeah. down. And yeah. that is horrifying because yeah, we all know how easy it is for the Wi-Fi to go out. You know what I mean? Oh. In the house, it's like absolutely everything is. And I think we saw this in the Industrial Revolution, though, too, right? Like this is the technological revolution. Like this is not uncommon for history. So it's not like we're in an unprecedented age, as people love to describe it as. It's like we've reached a point where this new invention is quite literally a keystone of of, of what we describe as civilization. You know, and it's like. We didn't ask for that, but we're at the cusp of it, I think. And it's it's become a part of reality. I think it's horrifying because again, I just think it's like we we are so reliant on it. 
and it's and it's affecting us and it's it's so fast and it's like it's too much for us i think like it's that's i think a lot of what this windows series is about too it's i'll, I'll digress a little bit there Oof. no i think what's horrifying is that there are generations that will never know what the real world is like yeah and that's that's a risk we like seriously are at like, like that's think- scary like the fact that kids there are some kids being born that would never go outside to play because they'll be on their phones at the time like yeah. that like i'm so grateful to be at the place i am at the age i am because i've had the experience of having no technology and the experience of having technology and i can honestly say all this technology as as fun as it can be and as helpful as it has been it is very much in my opinion it is very much destroying society the fabric of society itself and the way in which we communicate yes we communicate a lot easier but we're so distracted all the time we have no attention span things just don't mean as much to us anymore because it's always the next thing we're looking at it's just i don't know it's it's not going anywhere good in my opinion personally but at the same time there are benefits like this so you know there are like like anything in life i think there are pros and cons and i think it comes down to like how we use it to you know something great like this like it can be good there's like propensity for good in it i believe but I agree with you. Unfortunately, it's very much seems like it's not on. And that's what this window series is about. It's like, okay, what is it doing to us? What's, how's it, how's it affecting the human person? You know, that's really what, so it's, it's, and clearly like, you know, as you can tell, like there, it feels like the series could go on and on forever. And that's why I built it to do that because I feel like it's never going to stop in terms of the way that I feel I can understand it and the experience that I'm going to have with it. And then the experiences I'm perceiving and observing, you know, with it is a big part of that too. And just, yeah. So one thing I'm very interested in, and actually it's something that I'm very interested in just generally in art, because, you know, not just through my own work as well, but the idea of why isn't images combined? Like where does the idea kind of come from of combining images and words and kind of, do you think that that helps or hinders the way people read the work? I think for me, the reason I use words is because I believe words are so incredibly powerful and I have, there's a lot of, I really truly feel that words carry so much weight. And so the beauty of words then when you're combining them with images is it allows you like this whole spectrum of like harmony and dissonance of like disparity versus things that seem appropriate. And that's, I think the beauty of what I do is it's like, I use words, like I said earlier in the conversation as a tool, and I use them in different capacities all over the place. Like I use words in the Windows series and Digital Masquerade and all these series, sure. I also use words in my current body of work I'm producing called The Last Five Years, but in like a totally different way. And I think for me, it goes back to that whole aspect of like the layers, the intentionalism, the choices. Like sometimes for me, it feels like, you know, words carry more emotion than they do even meaning like you it starts breaking down like the connotative versus the denotative meaning of words like when you consider the dictionary definition you're going to get one aspect when you consider what words spoken sort of carry despite what they might mean that's a whole other aspect and then when you start considering like individuals and how they perceive certain words and what certain words can do to individuals that carries its own weight and so i like marrying all of these aspects. And I like saying like, in order to approach the ideas that I'm feeling, the emotions I'm feeling, sometimes words juxtaposed with imagery 
can do so much. Like with my current body of work, that's the thing too, is like, I've noticed how like the text that I'm using is handwritten cursive and it plays into the compositions of the piece. Like it actually helps push the visual composition by virtue of these thin, like tangly lines existing on the picture plane. So it's carrying even a greater, even like an extra meaning there, an extra layer where not only do we have the meaning of the words in context of the work and in, in their own meaning in the, in the greater context of what those words would just mean on their own, but then we also have the way that it's actually propelling this composition you're seeing before you and it's, it's driving your eye. So it's like, for me, I see words as just a natural part of like my toolbox. And the reason I describe myself as neo-figurative too, is because like, not only am I using the figure in ways unconventional where the figure is being used, not for the figure's own sake is that end, but because like, I want to use the figure juxtaposed with like other elements. Like one of my heroes artistically is Jean-Michel Basquiat. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's an artist. Yeah. You should look him up because it, it, it just to revel in what he does because he was what really first inspired me to try using words in my work years and years and years ago. And that's the thing is I just, I love that use of text because I feel like it carries a great deal of weight alongside the figure. Like I think the figure can do so much, but then I think words can do so much too. Hope that that's, makes sense. No, of course that makes sense. And I think that's, it's just something I'm really fascinated by. It's something that I've actually really noticed in my own kind of like personal kind of, um, just my own personal view of art because I look at a lot of art every day and it kind of like, it, it takes me a long time to, it's taken me a very long time to realize what kind of art I actually enjoy personally, as opposed to what art I think other people enjoy. And I think this idea, the relationship, the harmony and, and kind of, um, the harmony and what's opposite to harmony? The harmony, dissonance. thank you very much. I'm glad you're awake. The harmony and dissonance, dissonance, dissonance? The harmony and dissonance of words and images really interest me because yeah. you can have an image and the word that are not all related but you'd find meaning in them because they're both together. Yeah. And I like that. I think that's really interesting, actually. There's something about that just really, 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 just kind of really enthralls me. I'm just like, it's really interesting because- There's so much room, you know, with that. And not just that, it's because, you know, as you said earlier, your work is very intentional. So the words you've chosen aren't there for no reason. They're there for a very particular yeah. reason. And like, I don't know, it's just, there's something about words and images that really have interest me. And um, I don't know why, but lately- a lot of art I'm saying that I have that in, I'm really just being kind of drawn towards. It's just, I think it's probably a phase, like everything in my life is probably just a phase, but I'm very, very like, interested in that in the minute. Um, I don't know if there's anything about it that I'm just fascinated by. Well, but, that's um, like for me too. I That brings a good point though, because like titles of work for me are critical. They're yeah, huge. 100%. Like, like, yeah, 100%. You know, and I think that people need to remember that, that like the title is for me, I will, at least for me, and I think it's true for tons of artists. And I think, but I think people don't realize it is it's like the title is very, very, very important. It's very intentional. And it's, it's another one of those little entry points for a viewer. Oh, have you ever heard of the photographer, Francesca Woodman? No. You haven't. More to send me. I'm always surprised when people haven't heard of like, because her work is... How can I describe this? Like, so she's quite a, a quote unquote old photographer. Well, she's like one of those photographers that if you're in school, you'll learn about. Um, and her work is very, it, it depends on your viewpoint, but it can be considered very morbid or it can be considered very um, deeply psychological, should we say. 
And what she used to do is that she used to shoot a lot of, all of it self-portraits, which is really interesting. That's a really interesting kind of point of contention in her work. But um, it's almost like this, I guess it's almost like an emotional diary of a tortured soul because she, I think she committed suicide at, I think, 22 or 23. Um, and it kind of like documents her life. But a lot of her images had really interesting titles. Like there's an, in, an image called, uh, yeah, Another Leaden Sky. And like something like that is like beautiful, it's poetic. Yeah. Um, and there's something about her work which, in which she shot a lot of Polaroids and then would write random sentences on the Polaroids. And because they're physical, one-of-a-kind pieces, they're just really fascinating. I'll send yeah. you her work. She's one of my favorite photographers just because there's something about her work that's just really compelling and just really kind of, it speaks to me in a way. I don't know, I don't quite know why though, but it speaks to me in a way. I think that's just, it's something that I can't go back to all the time. I don't know why though, but it's just, I don't know. But anyways, yeah, I will send her work to you. Why would I ask you about as well? So actually move, still could continue on with your series. Um, I don't want to hark too much on a bit more about it because I think we've covered quite a lot of ground, but I still want to ask you more questions because I have a lot of questions. So, you know, are you okay to continue by the way? Because we have been here for quite a while. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Just making sure. Just making sure you're still afraid because, you know, you never know. So what I'm interested in, so IOY2, what's the 12 then? IOY2. So what I'm interested in that is this idea of interconnectivity and multiple point of views. That's actually one thing that art and imagery can do really well is this idea of like, you know, in these images you have FaceTime. It's like two people together next to each other on a screen. But in real life, that's not how it is. It's kind of like, this idea of like point of views, there's something about the idea of like having, like as a viewer, we can see the whole conversation, we can see the whole picture. Like what was kind of like your reason or your kind of, like why did you decide to set this particular series up in this way visually? Because it's very different to the rest. That concludes the first part of my conversation with Trails. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments about it, please send me an email at theflyingfruitbowl at gmail.com or get in touch via social media sites such as Twitter and Instagram. The Flying Fruit Bowl podcast is available on a variety of sites such as Spotify, YouTube and Apple Music. If you like the show, please consider rating, reviewing, sharing and subscribing to help spread the word. Also, please don't forget to check out theflyingfruitbowl.co.uk for daily art inspiration and if you're a creative, please get in touch for a chance to be featured or interviewed. We now also have a Patreon page if you'd like to support the platform further. Tears start from £1 and to see rewards and pricing, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the flying fruit bowl. Additionally, we also have a PayPal for one-time donations and I'll include a link to this in our description if you're interested. Once again, thank you very much for listening to this episode today. And until next time folks, please stay safe.